Hey guys, welcome to another episode. Hello, hello, hello. I really hope we're all doing well. Um, getting ready for the summer. And it's... getting ready for the summer and, you know, trying to normalize a little bit. Yeah, definitely. So, guys, we have an interesting guest. Um, I've been looking for someone with this uh, type of credentials to have on our show uh, for the things that we're interested in talking about, especially for those who are looking to get into the industry of CBD oil and also for those who are using these products and are really sure that are they getting quality products or, you know, are they selling what they're stating on the label. So tonight we have Asa Waldstein is a certified clinical herbalist and the chair of the AHP Association, which is the American Herbal Products Association uh, Cannabis Committee, with 20 years of experience developing and implementing compliant marketing and CGMP manufacturing process in dietary supplement and hemp industries. So I want to welcome Asa. Welcome. Oh, thanks so much, Osiris and Nina. I'm really grateful to be your guest on the show, so thank you so much for inviting me and for that kind introduction and for all the listeners out there. I'm really just an herbal geek, someone that <laughs> loves herbal medicine, natural medicine. It happened to be pretty good at manufacturing and interpreting regulations. So again, thank you for that kind intro. Oh, I appreciate it. And it's something I noticed also is that you've, helped form- you've formulated, manufactured, and marketed hundreds of products in a compliant manner. And helped, oh, then you helped oversee what three FDA CFR one eleven inspections without any four A three S. Now, for those who have n- that'll be all of us that yeah. have no clue what the hell and, that is, and myself included. What is that? What, please share. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, the FDA regulates dietary supplements under their it's called the CFR, the Code of Federal Regulations, Part one eleven. So, in the FDA comes into a dietary supplement manufacturing facility or a hemp uh, manufacturing facility because they're regulated essentially the same, in my opinion. They'll come in, they'll pull out their badges, their federal agencies, federal agents rather, and they'll do the inspection. So after a three, four, whatever, five-day investigation or inspection, they usually give you some 483s, which are kind of like your major deficiencies or your pink slips of what you need to work on. And if you don't if you don't handle those properly, they turn into a warning letter, which is a public record. So three three FDA inspections with no pink slips or no no four eighty threes is pretty darn cool. Oh, so I'm gonna equate this like so for and like in the restaurant business, where they go in for like almost like an inspection, and they'll tell you all the things that you need to work on. Is that very similar to that? Absolutely, any of the major things. So they you know they may say. Asa, you need to put something under the door jam because I see light coming through or something, you know, something minor, but something major in the restaurant industry is a pretty pretty good uh, equation. And then if in this example, if someone didn't fix that um, deficiency in the, in the manufacturing of the restaurant industry, then it would turn into a warning letter. And warning letters are public record and they're a big deal. Now, what exactly are stated on these warnings? I've seen a few. Do they vary or are they usually the same, you know, the same... Thing. It was almost like a uh, rubber-stamped type letter. Oh, on the warning letters? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, you're talking to a person that reads every FDA warning letter. Yeah. It's one of my favorite things. I love reading the warning letters. So there, a lot of them are, are different. So they'll start off by either saying we came into your facility and we found these things wrong. But more commonly, 
course, because of the pandemic, the FDA isn't doing very many in-person or now virtual inspections. Mm -hmm. But most of the warning letters are coming out based on people's marketing claims, such as it might be marketing a product for COVID is a very extreme example. Mm -hmm. That jumps directly, skips over the 483 and goes directly to that warning letter. And um, and then the FDA or FTC, or sometimes they do a combined warning letter, will kind of cut and paste usually what you see on the website. For example, you made this claim or here's what you're you, you know, here's another claim you made and then they'll they'll put their boilerplate um, language about why why you're not allowed to do that in there. Yeah, cuz I've seen these warning letters from like really big name brands and I'm just like wondering like for the most part are they online like doing like searches for anybody that says CBD on their product or a hemp? Yeah, good question. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I uh, I love that, Cyrus. Yeah, so it's an online search, and in in my in my vision of it, the FDA or FTC officials are sitting at home, probably in their pajamas. I'm being a little silly here, but working from home, they might have their cat on the lap, and they're searching CBD plus Alzheimer's, mm. CBD plus COVID. And then, you know, they can find it online. I think it's a little more sophisticated than that. I, I believe there's probably some type of web crawler or search algorithm that yes. kind of goes through the entire Internet catalog. And then if certain buzzwords or keywords, like, again, I'm using the extreme example of COVID pop-up, then they'll pay more attention to that site. Got it. Now, what are the, like, specific claims that they look for, like, it's all about the wording, basically. So you would literally have to hire somebody who specializes in wording. You know, it's almost like a double talk without really giving a hint that you know you're stating that you know without making that claim. Yeah, it's so true. And you know, that's I love that you brought that up, Osiris. I love this aspect of compliance so much that that is why I started my own regulatory consulting company to help analyze marketing risk in the web, social media, and labels and then help people come up with lower risk but effective verbiage. So I'll use, I'll use an example that I like using all the time, which is anxiety. Anxiety would be considered a drug claim and can certainly get you in trouble with the FDA or FTC. That would attract a warning letter. I have a scale, a risk scale of, a, of one, one to five. Five is, is really risky, one's very low risk. And anxiety is around a three to five, which means that you're likely to attract a warning letter. So instead of saying anxiety on your your marketing material, you can say happy mood support, balanced state of mind, mental resilience. Now those are those are the wordsmithing ways. As long as you're truthful and not misleading, those are other ways to get that point across. And I would also like to say if someone is using anxiety on their website, the, the claim anxiety. That includes hashtags, meta tags, that includes product reviews, testimonials, and sometimes citing blogs, videos. They're all considered an extension of the label or marketing, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. So what do you say to testimonials? Now, you mentioned testimonials. I'm thinking, well, if my customer are telling us what they feel, so it, yeah, would I still receive a warning line even though they said, hey, I had terrible anxiety or I had terrible headaches or... I had back pain and it helped or it treated it or it cured it, whatever the case may be. Yeah. I mean, those last couple of words would elevate the risk to treat the cure. I mean, that's, that's the FDA disclaimer that you see on supplement products. Not in this product's not intended to treat, diagnose, cure, prevent any disease. 
So using those kind of buzzwords certainly does elevate your risk. But in testimonials and product reviews, that is the same thing in the eyes of the FDA and FTC as putting it on your label. That's because the company is in substantiating that testimonial or product review by hosting it on their website or putting it on their product page, that type of thing. So, yeah, again, if a customer wants to talk about um, their product and your product and how much they love your product, you have to be careful to, to, to ask. You have to ask them to not use high-risk words, pain, inflammation, anxiety, that kind of thing. Okay. That will certainly attract a warning letter. In particular, these days, the FDA is paying more attention to that, um, especially over the past year and a half or two years. It's, I'm sorry. Wow. It's almost hypocritical because when I watch a pharmaceutical commercial, for a particular drug, you know, it says it helps with this, but then I listen for another minute of what the side effects are, and they get approved. So I'm like kind of confused. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, drug drugs and supplements. You know, um, you know, we, we certainly there's obviously some crossover because we people take them to you know potentially get the, the benefits from them, but they're you know they're categorized in in, in, in much different ways. Supplements have to have a level of safety, whereas drugs only have to have a level of effectiveness that outweighs the risks of the side effects, if, if that kind of makes sense. Uh, yeah, because um, like some of my supplements, like a, like a fish oil that I take, um, and it will say this is not FDA, FDA approved. And some people will think, well, I'm not going to take it because it is not FDA approved. Yeah, fish oil is a really good example <clears throat> because there actually is a pharmaceutical fish oil out there mm-hmm. which you can go and get a prescription for. I don't really know what the differences are between those two, but mm-hmm. some people have used that example when they're talking about the difference between a um, a, a CBD isolate or a full spectrum. I don't know if I'm, I'm exactly making making the right correlation there, but yeah, it's it's. If someone is going to be scared away by an FDA warning on a on a on a fish oil, for example, um, I, you know, I, I'd always say, you know, hit the internet and, and do your research to find out really what the, the benefits of those omega threes are. Yeah, so interesting. Because I, I had a cousin of mine. I guess she was giving her her child um, like a multivitamin, mm-hmm. and a lot of the multivitamins will say that these are not FDA approved. And then she immediately stopped giving the multi the multivitamin, though her doctor did recommend it. So oh yeah, that's too bad because yeah, multivitamins cover a lot of you know mineral and vitamin deficiencies that can lead to either you know certain oriented mood disorders and, and then you know inflammatory processes in, in the body and such. So that's too, that's too bad that she took you know such a rigid interpretation of that. Very standard FDA disclaimer. Yeah, I think a lot of people hold it as a gold standard, so they they are looking for that. I don't think they understand, you know, this what you just said about the the gray area in terms of their their ways of approving things. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and that's one of the great things about about your podcast. And there's you know some lots of other great content available online is helping educate the consumers. Is there there are you know, potentially not great multivitamins, to use that example on the market, but there are so many wonderful multivitamins that are really safe, really efficacious, 
And I'm, you know, I, I take a multivitamin, so does my wife, so does my daughter. Even though she's 20, my daughter has grown up. She's 20 years old in college. She tells me she's taking her multivitamin. <laughs> I, don't really I don't really know if she is every day, though. That's awesome. <laughs> so so the, the correlation between, I guess, CBD and the dietary supplement industry in the sense of they have to do the, the, the language. It's all about the language. But it seems like they're coming down harder on CBD than they do the dietary. Is the in my in my impression correct, or is it about the same? Well, I don't know. There, there is a lot of warning letters that come out for people marketing you know, dietary supplements for disease claims. Mm-hmm. You know, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, COVID, that type of thing to use as extreme. I call those five out of five on the risk level. I call it five out of five on the risk level example. So there are actually, there definitely are more warning letters that go to supplement companies than CBD and cannabinoid companies. Okay. That, that's, you know, that, that's for sure. We just hear about them more because it's kind of a, you know, it's an emerging market and it kind of gets in our news feed a, a little more. Now, I will say that the companies that are receiving these FDA warning letters that are hemp cannabinoid companies, they, I think that the FDA likes to make examples of certain companies. Mm. You made a, you made a COVID claim on a video. You used a COVID-19 hashtag. You use this anxiety claim on your testimonials. They, they kind of, they kind of look at the 30,000 foot view of a company's overall compliance or non-compliance. And then they really like to make examples of companies that are really going above and beyond to not comply, whether it's inadvertently or, or, or on purpose. And and with um, and with CBD companies, I think that because it's an emerging market, Osiris and Mina, that some com- some companies still to this day in 2021 don't really know the basics of marketing, and that's what I love about you know being guests on, on on podcasts like this is we get to help educate these marketers about hey here's here's what you shouldn't do here's another way to get your your compliant message across. Because we have to be able to get this compliant message across in a way that's effective and not going to get in trouble. Because the end goal is that's how consumers are going to be able to get their their health giving supplement. So the disclaimers that they put on the website is not enough. It's like you literally have to go through a fine tooth comb and making sure that the language is there. <laughs> yeah, it's not a get out of jail free card. It does not allow a company to make you know you know claims just because they have the FDA uh, disclaimer. Which again for for the audience out there is this product is not intended to treat, diagnose, cure, or prevent any disease. I've got it memorized, burned, burned in my memory. <laughs> so um, they could call, but can CBD be considered a dietary supplement? Ooh, that is a good question. Yes. Okay. yes. <laughs> so officially, according to the FDA party line, it cannot be a dietary supplement or a dietary ingredient. And the reason is is due to something called the drug preclusion clause. Mm. So Epidiolex was investigated as a new drug before hemp CBD or CBD isolate in particular was marketed as a dietary supplement. So it's kind of like if you're investigated as a new drug, you're first to market and then it can't be, it can't go from drug to drug to supplement. And so this is the whole debate with the CBD not potentially being a live dietary ingredient or potentially a legal dietary ingredient, if I could say that. Now, 
that's that's the that's the crux of the debate. It's because the drug epidiolex was investigated before uh, hemp, hemp CBD was was on the marketplace. Makes okay, that makes a lot of sense. So I just want to make sure because it was first investigated as a medicine, as a drug, it cannot be almost like downgraded to like a supplement and it's going to stay as a, as basically a medicine drug. That, that, that is the law. Now there's some debate because, you know, hemp and cannabis has been used for thousands of years. You know, yes. it's, it's, it's an inner culture. I mean, it's, it's been used in, in lots of cultures from, from, from long before Epidiolex was, was even, um, you know, a thought on the drug company's radar. Um, but but was isolated CBD sold? No, I don't think so. I'm, we haven't been able to find any uh, any any proof of that yet. That would be very interesting. Do you think they're going to get very detailed in terms of is it coming from hemp versus cannabis? Because I know for Epidiolex, they specifically said derived from cannabis. They're not saying hemp. So can hemp be a supplement? Sure. And I, and I don't know if Epidiolex is derived from what would be considered industrial hemp or the <clears throat> the over 0.3%. So for all the listeners out there, that's kind of a quick, quick aside on the difference between hemp and marijuana, which is the two, the two, the two forms of the cannabis, cannabis tea plant or cannabis plant, is anything 0.3% or under yes. of the THC, the, the the THC, the psychoactive um, molecule in there, is considered hemp. And anything over 0.3% is considered marijuana. I don't know where the epidiolex comes from, but I believe it. I think it comes from, from the hemp um, side, if, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, they weren't, like, I, we, we, we looked into it for our son at one point. They weren't really, they, they weren't really, um, it wasn't detailed in exactly what, like you know how you have a CD a CBD bottle and it will say this contains this and this much THC or whatever it didn't really say so yeah um it's not hundred percent sure I guess I mean I don't know <laughs> yeah it's it's really it's really an interesting discussion about you know what what is the what is the future of cannabinoids cannabis cannabinoids marijuana cannabinoids or hemp cannabinoids look like now there is a bill in Congress. And the 117th Congress right now called Bill HR 841, mm-hmm. and this is this is pretty unprecedented. Normally, if something is investigated as a new drug, it can't be a dietary supplement. End of day. I don't know if there might be a couple of exceptions to that, but I'm you know I'm not any, in any way an expert in that category. But because of the consumer demand in the multi-billion-dollar industry, and you know, consumers want this great product as as we. As we all are aware, so because of this, the trade groups, one of them is APA, who, as you mentioned on the onset, I chair their cannabis committee. I've got together with lots of other uh, folks and lobbyists to get this bill in front of Congress. So it's HR 841, and if it does pass, it will actually allow hemp CBD and hemp cannabinoids to be sold as a dietary ingredient if they follow certain protocols that are normally um, that are normally used under dietary supplements, so the manufacturing and the safety. Um, those are the two. The two. So it's pretty. Those are those are the two aspects of it. But it's pretty amazing that we're actually at this inflection point in the industry wow. where something that would normally be a non-starter. Yes, this the FDA looks at this a drug. 
because of consumer demand, we're able to kind of push it through and say, we want this. Figure out a way to make this work. And so it's pretty exciting. I think we'll look back at this time, you know, 20, 30 years from now and, and really, um, you know, with with awe at the really special um, place we find ourselves at this time in the happiness. Now, for a cannabis company to, if they really wanted to be able to sell I mean, from what it seems like, they they are able to sell products from state lines to state line because they have multiple licenses. But are they required to get a DEA, DEA narcotics um, license as well? I don't think so because it's state oriented. So the D, according to the DEA, cannabis or you know, let's refer to it with, but, you know, with the over point three percent title that's commonly used, marijuana. So that the high or high THC. Cannabis is another way to look at it. That's still federally illegal, uh, so the DEA doesn't, you know, provide any. You know, that's that's the line. Um, it's 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 illegal, but the states' rights are able to do that. It certainly becomes a federal DEA issue if someone was descended from one state to, to the next. Now, what kind of advice would you give a starting company like, like say, my wife and I decide, you know, we're going to launch our own brand uh, of CBD oil. We, but we're going to white label, we're going to private label through another company who have uh, hopefully all this information. So we are able just to post our whatever we want on our website and uh, we don't have to worry about it because it's compliant. Are we still liable? You certainly are liable as the person that is introducing this this hemp CBD product into interstate commerce. Mm-hmm. So if you have a website, I mean, that's just, that's just how it goes. That's how, that's how a lot of things get classified. So for example, if you made a, if you had a full spectrum product, so it had some detectable amount of THC and you sold it into California without a prop 65 warning on it, you, Osiris, and Nina, you'd be responsible for, for that prop 65 lawsuit. So I guess my, what would I just kind of back up and say my advice for companies out there looking to go, you know, get into the space is, you know, it's, it's a rocky road. It's really tough. There are large, large players out there, but if you're kind of really passionate about it and you want to you know, sell a product you believe in white labeling or also known as private labeling is a great way to go. You do need to verify your vendor, make sure that they're, doing things right, that they're following good manufacturing practices for dietary supplements, if it's an ingestible and internal product. You also have to make sure that the product that you're getting is actually what it says on the label. So you have to test it. You have to work with a third-party lab, and a lot of the white label or co-manufacturers can help you, you know, guide you in the right direction. Test it for CBD, microbials, heavy metals, pesticide, residual solvents, um, mycotoxins uh, and pesticides. I can't remember if I said that, but so as a new CBD brand, you got you want to a qualify the vendor. You want to qualify the label to make sure it's actually on there, and then you also you're responsible if you're distributing the product for following certain FDA regulations. You need to track where every single batch or lot goes. So if there's a recall, you know where to. You know where where to get the product back. Yeah. It's unlikely, but you, you never know. That's part of FDA regulations. And you also um, you also need to uh, to be responsible for uh, the labeling of the product. So if it if it has, inadvertently has any claims on there, you'd be responsible for it. So I don't know if that was so much 
I guess we'll, we'll call that cautionary advice for people looking to start a new CBD brand. Oh, it's very helpful because a lot of times people think they could just jump in and just start selling, you know, slap a label here and there and not think about uh, the other aspects of it. Yeah, that's how it was, uh, you know, at the beginning of last, you know, this year or last year, I believe there was over 3,500 brands of CBD um, out there is from, from what I read in, in one service. So a lot of those were cottage industries, people starting, you know, making it in their kitchen because they loved it. And it's a really low barrier entry or yeah. hiring a white label company to, you know, bring 500, 500 bottles to market. Um, that ship, I don't need to want to burst anybody's bubble out there, but that ship has certainly failed. It's very, it's very, very competitive in the MCBD market. There is a it's hard to get in front of your, your customers, your right customers. And that's why I think in the hemp space, why we see people really making these over-the-top claims because, one, maybe they don't know any better, but they're also, two, trying to gain that market edge. Right? You know, I always say to, to folks, get out of the mindset that you have to make claims in order to sell your product mm-hmm. <laughs> because I think that's a, a, a trap or a, a vicious cycle that a lot of new brands um, you know, fall into. Like, what's the most extreme claim you've read? That you're like, oh my god, this was too. There was, as as I mentioned, I I read every FDA warning letter. <laughs> I'm a complete I'm a complete geek about it. I love it. But so I remember back to 2019. That seems like a million years ago. And I know. The FDA sent out the big 15 warning letters, and so they sent 15 warning letters to C, to CBD companies in, in one day. It was the biggest regulatory. Um, enforcement action for MCD, I think, probably probably to this date. And in one of those warning letters, someone had cited a study, CBD for brain-damaged babies. And that was, you know, look, I'm, you know, I'm not here to debate whether that would be helpful or not, but the implication that their product would be useful for um, babies, the so babies are considered a, high, a vulnerable population, um, that was pretty over-the-top. Of course, COVID, um, anything that implies that a, a, a customer or a person should not take standard practices like social distancing, washing their hands. Hey, don't worry about that. Take my product and you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Those are those are, I guess, two uh, you know two examples of really really over the top um, claims. Okay. Wow. They were all in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, and the list goes on and on and on and 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 on. I mean, there's there's a lot there's a lot of things that say, you know, and and, and I you know, I'm not bashing the therapeutic aspects of cannabinoids or cannabis at all. I, I use them. I think there's a lot of therapeutic benefits. The companies just have to be very careful about inadvertently implying that or giving giving someone false hope that. If someone has a terminal cancer, this is gonna this is gonna cure them. Yeah, that's I've not, seen that's that. Cool. It I've... certainly could could help with that. When when my father, who uh, recently passed away in the past you know, four or five months, when he during his last days, I you know I provided him this great product, not thinking that it was a miracle cure, but knowing that that was going to provide some comfort. To comfort, him yeah. As he, uh, as he transitioned, yeah, exactly. But my question is, even for example, and we we use it for uh, epilepsy, and there's actually um, studies, um, antidotal, and there have been, um, especially out of Israel, that 
um, that kids have done, especially with um, syndromes like Gervais or Alanis Cresto, that have done better with CBD versus a placebo. So if someone said, say um, a parent had to make a claim that this oil did help their child, would that still be something that would get a letter, even though there are, there, there are studies? I, I love that question. So let's, let's, kind of, let's kind of break that down a little bit. So someone can, can say, without getting any commercial benefit, essentially whatever they want in, in, okay. in the U.S. You know, it's, it's, I believe that's probably protected speech. That's not my area of expertise at all. But someone could say on their personal blog or their forum, um, this product was great for my, my children's Gervais syndrome procedure syndrome. They're allowed to do that. Now, if the company then takes that post and puts it on a product website, that's, then, then that becomes a high-risk claim. So it's the material connection which becomes the claim there. And with Gervais, um, I mean, that's, that's exactly what CBD, or uh, Epidiolex, rather, CBD isolate, is approved for, is Gervais. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, that's, that's a lot of the studies there. And, you know... <laughs> I'm not going to say off the record, but we're being re- so we're being recorded, so I'll be careful with this. Is the difference? I don't know what the difference between Epidiolux that costs thirty thousand dollars a year for the prescription and buying CBD isolate from another reputable supplier. I don't really know what the difference is. To be honest, I don't necessarily think it's all that much. And so yeah, there's a so I'm part of a lot of groups on Facebook, and a lot of parents they're choosing to. You know, like you, like you just get an isolate, and it is helping. So that that's why I, I pose that question. You know, if they were to post that, and it is helping, and there is studies out there, um, you know, how would that be? You know, with the FDA, but uh, but definitely, yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you, thank yeah. you for the answer. Yeah, I love I love that question. And again, just to, because it's a really important point, I want to make sure we get it we get it across to all the listeners yeah. out there. Is yes, you're more than more than happy, you're more than welcome to provide this context and here's some studies and here's what will work for me and here's my my personal yeah. testimonial on this. But then at some point if someone said, and that's why you should buy my product, or oh. if an affiliate said, and here's an affiliate code to buy this product because they're getting that commercial connection or that material connection, oh. i.e. cash or free product, that's when it becomes something that's in the warning letter or code, 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 stricter category. Makes Makes sense. sense. So, okay. Get that. Now, has the FDA shut down any companies or do, is that their, you know, I guess in their wheelbarrow in the sense that one of the things they do is shut companies out or is there a process before leading up to you like, okay, your company has to shut down or has to cease and desist uh, all operations? Yeah. I love I love that. So, the, I mean, I I always I look at the FDA and FTC as as friends, not foes. I, I consider them to, to be allies because their their really goal is to protect consumer consumer health. Um, that's just you know, what what their mission is. So, there's a lot of good good folks at, at the FDA and FTC. I would also like to say that the FTC is the Federal Trade Commission. They handle more of the more of the advertising. Side of it, and I'll, I'll, I can come back to that if you like. So, they both have very limited resources, the FDA and the Federal Trade Commission. So, what we see with the FDA is they'll send out warning letters, and 
that's usually as far as it goes. That can lead to injunction, potential force recalls, very rare in the in you know in, in the world of the FDA. Now the Federal Trade Commission, on the other hand, has a lot more teeth. And they can they can they can um, assess fines. So back in December the the Federal Trade Commission came out with something called Operation C B Deceit, which is kind of a, a cutesy name for saying we went after six C B D companies. They fine them, they um, what else did they do? It's called an administrative complaint. So it's it's like a warning letter with, with lots of teeth. So they fine them, some companies up to eighty five thousand dollars. Some companies have to report on their compliance for 20 years, so they're just selling their business. And then he was kind of the nail in the coffin for some of the companies in Operation CPDC. They potentially had to offer refunds to their customers. Oh, wow. wow. Buying this product. So that's kind of like, I would, I would think, a company. And I do know the Federal Trade Commission before that, I believe a year and a half ago or two years ago, there was a company called Thrive or Mark Ching, and the Federal Trade Commission um, made a complaint against them, and I believe they were able to do an injunction and shut them down and also fine. So basically oh, wow. ban them from making certain claims about their product. But it rarely goes further than that. I mean, you certainly want to avoid a warning letter. You certainly want to avoid the administrative complaint or action from the Federal Trade Commission. And, and, in, and in very serious cases, they, you know, they, they do send people to jail. Not necessarily for making claims, you know, at that level, um, it's because people are falsifying records and just being completely, um, completely malicious. But, but really, both of the federal federal agencies, FDA and FTC, are, are not really that well funded. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that may seem that may be a surprise, but they they, they have very limited resources. Ooh, okay. So. If they can catch somebody to catch them, if not, it would have to be literally egregious for them to make jump. And do what uh, the FTC does, in that sense. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really, uh, that's a re- those are really strict examples and really rare examples. I do, I do have a blog. I love, as you probably can tell, I love this stuff. I'm passionate. You can probably hear it in my voice. Yeah. And I do a lot of regulatory writing. So I have a blog on my website, which is my name, com, a regulatory blog. And one of those blogs, I go into a lot of detail about this operation, CBDC, and you know what's what's special about it and why the company's got in trouble. If anybody really wants to you know, dig into the details, I've, I've got that there. Yeah, I think so. It would be interesting uh, for people who are interested in even doing uh, multi-level marketing with CBD, prod- oh, some CBD companies. You know, it's good to do your research, do your homework. Did they receive a letter? The companies you want to partner up with? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's if, you know, companies that, got, that have received warning letters are not necessarily all bad folks, mm-hmm. but it is. I mean, I'll, I'll just kind of jump into this real quick. Here's the reasons why you want to avoid, avoid a warning letter. Well, it's public record. You know, it's a, it's a dark smudge on a company's name or a person's name forever and ever. It takes resources to respond to. You need to hire a lawyer, or you should. Uh, it takes your eye off the prize, so it stops you from focusing on your company. You have to respond to the FDA. And then what a lot of people don't think about or talk about is it really scares away, scares away investors. So in the cannabinoid world, there's so much mergers and acquisition happening that a warning letter is really the quickest way to scare away um, potential investors or buyers for a company. 
Yeah, it makes sense. You they don't want to invest in things. It's like having like um a scarlet letter. Like you don't want you know to deal with the company that has the makes sense. Yep. Oh, here's one more point I forgot to make. Warning letters are oftentimes used as the basis for wrongdoing in class action lawsuits. So we see warning letters come out in particular, you know, sometimes in the hemp space, and then a couple weeks later we'll see a couple class action lawsuits where people are saying, see, you're deceptively marketing your, pro- marketing your product the FDA sent, and they use those warning letters as a basis for the wrongdoing. And that's when the plaintiff bar gets, gets involved, and that can be um, you know, beyond expensive. So I have um, two questions for you, especially for our listeners. Uh, how did you, what made you become um, a herbalist? And ex- explain exactly what a herbalist is. Okay, great. Oh, this is fun. I love it. <laughs> so I, I was, you know, you kind of follow, you follow your passions, you follow what you like. So when I was a teenager growing up in the Bay Area and hiking in the Santa Cruz Mountains and wow. camping and stuff, I was always drawn to plants. You know, what does this plant do? Can I, you know, get, get to identify this plant? Can I, you know, read about this plant? Can I learn about it? And so I, I knew, I always knew there was something there. Um, and so in late 90s, I came out to beautiful Boulder, Colorado, which I live right down the road still today in, in, in Colorado. It's, it's an amazing place to study one of the only herbal schools in the country at that time, the Rocky Mountain Center for Botanical Studies. And so this was the late 90s where everybody equated natural herbal healing to like, oh my God, you're a ganja dealer or something mm-hmm. like that, which now is not a big deal. But back then, it's like, oh my of God. Of course, yes. Someone's going to wants to get a, get arrested for this type of thing. It was definitely a different time. So I studied a three year at a, a three year clinical herbal program and received a certification after working in the free clinic to become a certified clinical herbalist. So there's no real accreditation. Well, there there are if, if companies if if individuals do this for many years, but there's not a lot of accreditations when it comes to an herbalist. It's kind of like a a name that you can get with a certificate or you can be self-taught. And I think the core of being an herbalist or you know, working with herbs is, is that you want to, instead of using medications or drugs, you like to find alternative ways to soothe your body. So that might be as simple as try to limit your ibuprofen amount and take aspen bark instead. Or I like whenever... Um, I'm feeling sick. I go out and I get some pine needles in the backyard and I do a, a respiratory steam to kind of help mm. opening up my lungs and, and kind of create those antimicrobial oils to get in my lungs. I think those are probably a couple of okay examples. Now, having that skill, how empowering has it been for you to be in complete control of what goes into your body now? I really love it. Early on in the pandemic, where and I, and I purchase a lot of supplements. I mean, vitamins. I don't just, I don't just wildcraft and make my, make my own medicine with everything. I make my own echinacea tincture and that kind of thing. Mm. Well, early on in the pandemic, what I found is that people were having what I was calling the herbal renaissance, where they were <laughs> looking for natural medicine because people were scared. They were kind of getting back to their their, their creature comforts, which was staying inside. And what kind of herbs do I have inside? Well, I've got a lot of kitchen herbs. I've got thyme. I've got garlic. I've got ginger. So people were able to kind of reconnect with that 
the basics of what I call kitchen herbalism or cottage herbalism. And it's really, for me, what I most, what I really love is going out of the woods and picking, and either picking plants or identifying plants or just kind of hanging out with the plants. So if my, my wife and daughter or any of my friends were on this call, they would say, yes, we know he's the slowest hiker because he's always stopping and looking at all the different plants on the, on the trail here. So it is very empowering and it's fun. That's amazing. Great. I mean, I can see any company that's coming on board that's even current companies that really haven't gotten it together in the sense of their packaging or just their language could use your skill sets and your understanding how the system works and how to get on the FDA's good side and avoiding the FTC. Yes, indeed. It's you know, the goal is to be truthful, not misleading and, and really remove all the buzzwords. I have as I mentioned, I love I love this stuff. I love this aspect of compliance. I have lots and lots and lots and lots of free resources on, on my website. The videos, blogs, uh, you know, you know, help, helpful uh, hits, uh, hints and, and tips. I've got my own video, whole YouTube channel oh, to get, uh, dedicated to free regulatory hints for hemp companies and dietary supplement companies, such as be careful with made in the USA labeling. That's mm. something we haven't talked about because that can lead to a lawsuit. And and so, and so I love to do the values forward. I mean, I have my own regulatory consulting business, as I mentioned. But I love providing lots of free resources for uh, for the community because it, really that's how I learned. If people wanted to reach out to you, how would they do so? Uh, I know you said you had your website. Yep. So the, I, I'm on I'm on LinkedIn, and probably the best way to get a hold of me is through my website, which is asawaldstein.com. That's asawaldstein.com. And through there, you can find my regulatory blog, my speaking schedule, links to my YouTube channel, all the other things that, that I like to do to, to really um, fill up my day. But the days go by quick, but I, they go by with a smile, so it's all good. Okay, well, thank Wonderful. you, Asa. So are you guys out there who are planning to get involved as an, a brand ambassador or even to start your own private label? Check this guy out. Make sure you got it all covered before you jump into that water. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Asa, I just want to say thank you. We thank you very much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate your time and your knowledge as well, because uh, it kind of opened my eyes to things that I wasn't even aware of. But uh, yeah, very, no- very educational. I just we love. Oh, thank you so much, Osiris and Nina. It's been a great honor to be here and, and chat with you about these really fun and important topics. And really, the more we can get these health-giving products into the hands of people, that, you know, the better off we'll be, uh, you know, as a human race. Definitely appreciate it again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast, The Talking Hedge, and newest member on PodCon X. So come on over and check out The Talking Hedge. We talk about business news, interviews, investments, events, all that stuff. So come nerd out with me over at The Talking Hedge. You can find me at thetalkinghedgepodcast.com or on all your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. 
Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out A Major Journey today on all major podcast platforms. I'm out.